Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I would suggest the most important political conversation of the day. Marty Walsh is from Boston, but is a different path than anybody else I know. The gentleman who fought off cancer as a child went to BC, and and then he had to root for the New England Patriots. He appears with us today, even though the Patriots are not the Patriots he and I know, and even though Brady did better than good last night. Marty Walsh, it is a Boston in transition. Clearly, you are for President Biden. What do the cities need from a Biden administration day one? Uh, the collaboration, I think, is the first and first thing that, that we need the most. Um, myself and, and Mayor Lance Bottoms from Atlanta just did an op-ed, and we talked about the importance of having a White House that, that understands uh, how a city works and understands the relationships that need to happen. And in the last three and a half years, I've had no meetings, no conversations with the White House. Uh, the, the, the White House, the way it currently exists, is a top-down approach, and, and the Joe Biden White House would be very different. Uh, Mayor Walsh, Christopher Whalen, a good friend of the show, an expert in financial history, just put out a photo on Twitter on Central Park South, and it's from the Trump campaign. New Yorkers are going to suffer, and that's their problem. That's been the attitude of this president towards Democratic strongholds, and yet we see Republican cities as well having challenges in the pandemic. How much do you need from Washington, and what will you do with the money when you get it? Well, when it comes to mayors, mayors don't regard each other as Democrats or Republicans. We regard each other as mayors that run our cities, and we collectively need to have an administration in Washington that's going to work with us. And I can say firsthand here in Boston from the the early days of the pandemic, uh, right through the pandemic, uh, there's been no assistance from Washington. We've had to go it alone for the most part, including states. We've had to figure out PPE. We've had to figure out even thinking about how, how do we prepare our residents for the future as far as being careful and physical distancing and social distancing. Our messages have been consistent uh, across America. It, it's really important. And, and then as racism reared its ugly head in America again, and, and we had protests and demonstrations across the streets, around the streets in America. Uh, this White House, quite honestly, just agitated and incited violence. Uh, and, and it's really, we need leadership right now. And in Boston, I'll tell you, 159,000 people have already voted before Election Day. So there is definitely a feel for change in the air. Uh, and it's not just Democratic cities, it's, it's, it's all cities across America. Mayor Walsh, there is a feeling of change. There's also a feeling of fear. And my younger son last night said to me, you know, is there going to be violence? And he's looking around and he's seeing all of the boarded up windows around New York City and I believe in in Boston as well, your town. How concerned are you about violence in response to any election outcome, particularly uh, if President Trump is in the lead, given the fact that people in Democratic cities are the ones, honestly, uh, that are having boarded up windows? Just think about wait, the question you just asked me. We live in the greatest country in the world where, where freedom and democracy is what we're proud of. And we have cities and, and businesses all across America putting boards on windows, worrying about violence because of a general election. We've never seen anything like that. Uh, this is not a result of, of, of Joe Biden uh, and, and his speeches. This is a result of a president who has failed America, 
This is the result of a president who's failed the American economy. Uh, he's failed. He's, he's failed everything that, that he, he claims he stands for. Uh, and I'm hoping that after today's election, uh, we don't see violence. Uh, and, and what I'm focused on today is making sure that people get out to vote. People can vote without intimidation. People can vote safely. Uh, and they, they should be able to do that in Boston, Massachusetts. And they should be able to do that all across America today uh, with, without that fear. I hope that's not the country that we're becoming, quite honestly. Mayor Walsh, one final question, uh, if we would, uh, this morning. Dorchester represents the heritage of a Democratic Party that has lost so many people to the Republicans, or at least to Donald Trump. What is the policy prescription you would suggest for the liberals in your party to get back to the kind of voters that made Dorchester years ago? I think first and foremost, we need to elect Joe Biden president today. And I think that then we, we go back and to, to kind of look at the party and, and not, not, I would say we have to rebuild the Democratic Party, but certainly we have to go back and get those Democrats that used to be Democrats and pull them back into the Democratic Party. The values of the Democratic Party are the same values that those people, the party they joined many, many years ago. Uh, and as mayor of the city of Boston, I'm committed to doing that. And as other mayors across America, we're well, committed to bringing, bringing our party back and representing everyone. Mayor Walsh, I'd like to see a Tom English's pub, but I believe it shut down a year ago. Oh, there's still one in Southie. There's still one in Southie. That's all yeah. that matters. Mayor, thank you so much. Marty Walsh, uh, the mayor of uh, Boston here on a most interesting day. And again, we say good morning to Bloomberg Radio listening across New England, 106.1 FM. Right now in trouble is Stephanie Kelly with Aberdeen Standard Investment. She has a really interesting mandate at the large investment management firm of trying to figure out what all this means for investment management and particularly longer term money. Stephanie Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. What does this mean for active management? How does election play into the investment management industry next year? I think, if anything, the U.S. election illustrates just how crucial that role really is for us managers, because if we look at what a Biden administration might mean with or without a Democratic majority, or indeed what happens if Trump gets reelected, all of those things, I think, are really stories about the sector rather than necessarily just the pure index. And so it's a time when you really need to be thinking about what does the regulatory environment mean? And that's not always super clear cut. It's not cut and dry. And so understanding and actively thinking about what does regulation mean? What does legislation mean? And which are the sectors who win and which are the sectors who lose? That's what's going to be the key to investment right. management in 2021. S summarize the state of populism right now. We have this terrible terror attack in Vienna, Austria, the state of populism in Austria, in England, for that matter, in Canada, and certainly with Mr. Trump in America. The state of populism on this election day. So I think there's a couple of ways to, to think about populism. We tend to focus on right-wing populism, and I think that's been the one that's been the most successful in recent years. Indeed, you look at places like um, the, French, the French 2017 elections, we look in the US, we look to the UK. That seems to be where the kind of populism support is growing. I think the one to watch for investors, though, is in the next kind of year or so, it's actually Italy, because although at the moment we have this coalition, which is relatively stable and for now seems quite stable, but my fear is that that kind of is hiding what is underneath, which is that actually the majority of support for 
parties in, in Italy is for populist parties. And in particular, it looks as though a right-wing populist coalition could be the next government when we get to the next election. So that's one to watch for the next year. It's not near-term risk, but it's definitely one to bear in mind that Italy is this permanent kind of challenge with populism and systemic issues and cyclical issues that make it for me quite a kind of ever-present source of president of political risk, just not right now. Stephanie, to state the obvious, there is upside risk as well as downside risk. And I wonder what we're learning about what populism actually means for financial markets. Well, I think the interesting thing is, you know, we use this kind of term populism in a very broad sweep. What matters is like, what are the policies that they're incorporating or are they making um, a risk event, you know, bigger than it would be otherwise, right? So an election is a good example. I think here we probably need to veer away from just the populism and think more about that polarization, right? It's not just that you've got parties in the far right or the far left, it's that those more centrist parties can also pull apart. And in the US, a prime example, we're looking at a Democratic Party that's much further left than it was four years ago against a Republican Party, which remains kind of quite conservative at its core, although, of course, Trump has kind of implemented this additional element. I think what that means is that from one election to the next, you can get a lot of swings, and that's where the risk comes in for investors, at the short-term risk. And then really the question, as I mentioned, it's what is once you're over the event, once you know the result, once the uncertainty is gone, what does regulation look like? What does legislation look like? And what does that mean for the companies you're investing in? That's the way we have to think about it. Stephanie, just to build on that sort of connection between markets and politics, can you give us a granular sense of the process of how you work with investment managers, whether you're looking at long-term plays or short-term plays based on some of the political developments that you were just talking about? Sure. So there's a a couple of ways that we do this. The main was uh, when I started doing this kind of political analysis in the asset management industry, which I have to say, (laughs) there aren't that many political economists floating around the asset management industry. And so I was quite struck by the extent to which there just weren't these frameworks in place to think about politics. So I always say to our investors, to our clients, you know, you have to think in scenarios. It's not enough to just have a base case. Investors always anchor on this kind of base case approach. When it comes to politics, you have to accept there's a lot of information you don't know. We don't know if polls are accurate until they're proven accurate or inaccurate. We don't know how politicians are feeling inside. We can do lots of engagement. We can do lots of research. But I think the best way to think about it is not single base case, what's going to happen, but what's the distribution of risks here? And then from that, say, okay, this is the distribution of political risks. What happens to markets in each of those scenarios? And then that way you have not only a distribution of political risk, but actually of market risk. And then you have a better understanding of how exposed you are to a given outcome, be that Brexit, be that US-China trade relations, or indeed the US election. Stephanie, probably the most prominent political economist these days, or moonlighting perhaps as a political economist, is Ray Dalio of Bridgewater. He's been talking a lot about the rise of populism, about the inequality, and about cash is trash, the expectation for inflation in the United States. Do you agree with his conclusions based on his assessment of the political landscape? I mean, I think that there's... There's a lot to parse out in terms of that connection. I think we should never kind of be too quick to rush into what it means. And in particular, I think, you know, there tends to be, particularly that relationship, and I don't mean specifically to Ray Dalio here, but there tends to be this discussion that takes place whereby more government intervention equals lots more inflation. And I think we really need to put that in the context of what other political 
kind of issues are going on. And one big one is actually, you know, the globalization element, but also the kind of cyclical weakness and the structural weakness. Those things push and pull against inflation in different ways. And so I think it's another example of where we've got to be quite careful and kind of considered when we think about each individual risk and how that plays into these big macro themes, which still also rely on kind of, you know, bread and butter economics, right? What's being produced? What's being, where's the demand? Where's the supply? Got to thank Stephanie Kelly of Aberdeen Standard yes. Investment. Stephanie, thank you very much. Michael Zizis is with us with Morgan Stanley, not only doing policy research, but with a foundational understanding of our municipal finance. We're thrilled he could join us this morning. Michael, every single conversation we have in your area says, and then there'll be infrastructure. And yet there's never infrastructure. What is the political outcome you need so there can be infrastructure? I think it is a necessary condition to get a meaningful infrastructure package that you end up with a situation where the Democrats take the White House and the Senate and keep control of the House. Uh, Simply put, in a divided government scenario, there's not much legislation getting done uh, beyond perhaps uh, another COVID relief package under certain circumstances. In a scenario where the Republicans take control of the House and keep the White House and the Senate, you have the same problem that you had in 2017 and every other time that you've had complete control by the Republican Party. In theory, they're on board with the idea of infrastructure spending. In practice, they haven't been able to get there because they also can't agree on raising taxes to do it. They are against letting the deficit expand to do it. So you end up uh, sort of twisted up without a solution. Uh, The Democratic Party uh, sort of is obviously a little more amenable to raising taxes or expanding deficits when it comes to spending. So, again, I'd say it's a necessary condition that that's the configuration that you get. Uh, Not a sufficient one because, of course, the the Democrats are going to have to balance their their policy priorities. And health care is certainly in the mix and probably a high priority item also. Michael, there's a lot to unpack there. I think the broader theme to all of your comments is just the risk of a divided government when it comes to fiscal spending. How big of a downside risk could there be to markets? Should there be a divided government? Because it does not appear that that's being priced in. Yeah, well, the first thing I'd say is that I think most post-election configurations here lead to fiscal expansion. The one that concerns us is the one where uh, the Democrats take the White House, but the Republicans keep control of the Senate. And it's not to say that you might never get fiscal expansion or COVID-specific relief in that situation, but that you might need a greater demonstration from economic data or markets that such a response is needed. And that's because we know where the Democrats are on COVID relief. They want to go big. Uh, Senate Republicans um, are expressing skepticism that the economy needs it, are also expressing concern about raising deficits further. And so that disagreement manifests in that type of election outcome. And again, you might eventually get there, but the fiscal reaction function becomes very reactionary as opposed to proactive, which is what markets are expecting right now. Michael, I'm really interested in the conversations you're having with clients at the moment. If you were to ask them, you think, whether they would prefer to know the outcome of the Senate race or the White House race ahead of time, what do you think they'd say? Most clients would prefer to know the outcome of the, the presidential race. Is the consensus is still, at least in terms of the surveys that we've run, the consensus is still that a divided government outcome uh, of any type is preferable to a unified outcome, mostly because it creates 
certainty around policy, or at least that's the perception, right? I was outlined an argument where I think it's, it's nuanced and a little bit different. Uh, so I do think that that is where most investors are paying their attention, but they also obviously understand the difference between the Democrats taking the White House without the Senate uh, versus with the Senate. Um, and generally speaking, in our surveys are agreeing that you get the biggest fiscal mm-hmm. boost in that situation. Mr. Zizis, the votes are in in the judiciary, and I believe we have nine justices at some point here as the clerks get ready to help uh, Justice Coney Barrett. Great. What about the Affordable Care Act? What is the Morgan Stanley view on where the Affordable Care Act is, say, in March of 2022? Again, I think this is very path dependent. So um, if we generalize a bit, not specific to the Affordable Care Act, but whether or not in 2021 you're going to have the same level of government spending on health care or greater, the situation uh, that makes that true is the Democrats taking the White House and the Senate, uh, regardless of what the Supreme Court outcome is, because one could expect a, a pretty uh, a quick response legislatively should the Supreme Court overturn the Affordable Care Act. Uh, in the situation where the Democrats take the White House, Republicans keep control of the Senate, I think it gets quite a bit trickier, and obviously it gets trickier um, if the uh, if Republicans maintain the White House. So to the extent that you're looking for, and certainly our healthcare equity uh, team uh, looking at managed care organizations thinks the Affordable Care Act uh, has largely been beneficial for the bottom line of large MCOs, the configuration that yeah. gets you the best uh, outcome there is the Democrats winning the White House and the Senate. Michael, appreciate your time, sir. Send our best to the team at Morgan Stanley, won't you? Michael Zizas there of Morgan Stanley. Right now, James Sweeney joins us with Credit Suisse, and this is an important conversation because in the mix of the political punditry and, frankly, the financial punditry, Mr. Sweeney has been very clear of a cautious view on American economic growth. James, you still continue with the view that it will be a struggle forward? Well, I, I think it largely depends on the stimulus outlook. And, and so, you know, what I'll be looking for today is do we get a clean sweep scenario where the stimulus expectations become clear, or do you have something a lot more muddled? I think effectively what's happened in recent months is that the big increase in deposit balances of a lot of households and the fact that people have bought a lot of physical goods while they haven't been buying a lot of services has hidden some problems that the household sector has with cash flows if we don't get that stimulus. There there are quite a few things that are going to restrict household cash flows and, and incomes in the months ahead without new help from the government. Uh, James, when you say problems, can you be more specific about those problems and where you think they are? Sure. Well, first, you remember the unemployment um, insurance, which uh, we had supplementary unemployment insurance uh, during the worst part of the pandemic. It expired in August. Um, people said there would be a cliff. There was a cliff. It fell. Um, but there's another cliff at the end of December. Um, so there, there's more, uh, basically, unemployment payments from the government will be reduced further. There's also forbearance measures that many households have benefited from, which will expire at the end of the year. Um, if you look at labor income, you know, it's very unlikely we're going to continue to see 600 to a million in jobs growth per month. So jobs growth should be good, but it could, should continue to, to slow. Uh, wage growth should slow because wage growth has been driven up 
by an odd composition effect in the in the jobs data, and and the hours worked per week should slow due to a similar effect. So if you're in the nerdy details, um, a lot of them point south in the near term in, in terms of the cash flows of, of, of households. James, I've got to say, you just don't sound as constructive as you were maybe a month or so ago on this recovery. Is that a fair characterization of your development of your ideas in the last month or so? Uh, well, I, I, think, I think I just see it as very stimulus dependent in the, in the near term. I mean, recently... We, we are in a little bit of a slowdown relative to the sharp acceleration that we had in Q3, but the economy is not contracting. The economy is growing right now. Uh, but I, I do think uh, stimulus in the very short term, something like the package that was negotiated um, between July and, and this month, is, is very important. And, and so you know, if you have an election outcome that makes that stimulus likely, then I, I think we can be in pretty good shape. But, but otherwise, I, I think there's, there's trouble. Also, uh, the virus. I mean, the virus is picking up again, and that's a new headwind. And, and the virus is probably picking up a little more than a lot of people expected. So, um, so we're just skittish, I would say, rather than actually forecasting um, a major problem. James, that's where I wanted to go, the virus and how much it's spreading. What high-frequency data are you looking at to gauge the response? If it isn't lockdowns, as a lot of people expect the U.S. to avoid some of the lockdowns that we're seeing in Europe, what uh, are the measures you're looking at to determine how much people's behavior is sort of acting in a restrictive way on the economy? Well, sure. So, I mean, on the virus side, we, we just look at the positivity rates and the, the spread and, you know, the direct virus data. Uh, on the economy side, I, I think a lot of this new data that we have on, on foot traffic to establishments, on point of sales data, uh, I don't think the macro data are all that helpful. And I, I think the market is somewhat accustomed to looking at the same old indicators, but, um, but, but it can get thrown off pretty easily. So, for instance, people have been excited about retail sales being strong, Retail sales are goods consumption. Consumption is 70% of GDP, but only 20% of that is actually goods. Uh, services are, are the problem here. So looking at foot traffic into restaurants, foot traffic into airports, <clears throat> things like that, right. um, and, and related spending numbers are, are what we're watching. James Sweeney, Jean-Claude Trisset loves the word diffusion, except he says it with a fancy French accent I don't have. And right now the major question is, If we have the haves doing better or even prospering in this pandemic, can any of their prosperity diffuse over to a large body of Americans who are to be kind, economically anxious? Is there any ability to see a diffusement of that prosperity, that income, that wealth? Well, the, the problem isn't just that the income trends are different. But the concentration of people working in lower-wage services sectors while having lost their unemployment or their extra unemployment and you know, about to potentially be losing their, their forbearance, um, that's trouble. Uh, so the fact that people are, are buying big-ticket durable goods largely imported are not necessarily helpful you know, to a waitress who, who, who isn't working right now. James, great to catch up with you, sir. James Sweeney there of Credit Suisse. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.